Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Bernard Madoff, the Manhattan investment advisor who promised stellar returns to his A-list clients and instead defrauded them of more than $19 billion in history's largest Ponzi scheme has died. He was 82. We want to get more color on the man behind uh, the scam, Bernie Madoff. And we do that. We're so fortunate to have Jim Campbell. Jim is the author of an upcoming book entitled Madoff Talks. He's also host of the radio show's Business Talk with Jim Campbell and his crime show Forensic Talk with Jim Campbell. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. I know you have your book coming out on Bernie Madoff, uh, Madoff Talks, uh, available April 27th. Talk to us about the access you had to Bernie Madoff for this book. I think it's just uh, really interesting. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Obviously, something must have happened today, and uh, it is big news, actually. Um, it was very, it was really fortuitous in the sense that I was doing an interview for my show on a book on Madoff, and they let me speak off the record with Andrew Madoff. And um, I found him to be very open. I asked him tough questions. He obviously was doing nothing publicly because he was under uh, all kinds of assault from the uh, Southern District of New York and the Sipic Madoff uh, trustee. He introduced me then to Ruth Madoff, who, again, fortuitously had just moved to Greenwich, where I live, and uh, we developed a relationship. She introduced me to Bernie. Bernie and I communicated. I had got over 400 pages between handwritten letters, emails. Um, He's very Nixonian. He had this need, compulsion to kind of explain everything. A fascinating guy. Um, You'd just be amazed about him. He was not driven by greed, um, ironically. Uh, driven by control. And uh, let me just tell you, then you can ask me whatever you want. The biggest single thing that blows my mind is he built side by side one of the most ethical, innovative, and leading businesses on Wall Street. That was his market maker. At the same time, two floors down behind a locked uh, door with several unsophisticated folks, he built the biggest criminal enterprise in in, uh, Wall Street history. It wasn't like he got in trouble, had to double down, and then do a Ponzi scheme he thought he would get out of. He built them side by side. So I wonder, do you feel sorry for Bernie Madoff? I know he committed, I guess you could say heinous crimes, although they were, you know, Mm -hmm. financial in nature. Um, He did bankrupt a lot of people who, you know, their lives were made considerably worse afterwards. Mm -hmm. There were suicides, one of whom was his own son, though. Um, Mark killed himself in 2010, and then Andrew died of lymphoma in 2014. I mean, do you feel bad for the guy? I think the way to answer that question is, was he a pure sociopath um, who essentially was a financial terrorist? And the answer is no, it's not black and white. He ran the firm like a family. He paid for folks' sudden medical expenses, their honeymoons traditionally. And so it was not black and white. On the other hand, he has the sociopath uh, aspects of very little empathy. He had resentment for his victims in some sense. He thought they were greedy. They were always asking him for more. He could never say no. So uh, it's kind of a, a mixed bag. He's obviously can never be forgiven for what he did, and he could never come to grips, essentially, with honestly uh, admitting it. But he's not a uh, out-and-out 
you know, pure sociopath evil guy. You know, I Ellie, found, I'm sorry, Matt. Ellie, let me just say, Ellie Wiesel, you know, the famed Nazi hunter, Holocaust survivor, yep. Nobel Peace Prize winner, was asked if he could forgive Madoff, and he said no. To forgive, first of all, and this is a direct quote, would mean that he would come on his knees and ask for ask for forgiveness. He wouldn't do that. Um, no. Is that right? Did he never do that, even to someone like Ellie Wiesel? Well, let me tell you this, and this is kind of an irony. Um, he wrote a one-sentence letter to Andrew and Andrew's partner, fiance, um, that said, I'm so sorry, Dad. Essentially apologizing for the scheme. Not even a love, but it was one sentence. At the same time, I was getting six, seven single-spaced letters in beautiful, exquisite handwriting, explaining and rationalizing everything. So, yeah, he had a tough time. He had an ego that could never admit any kind of loss, which is not something to be uh, a tribute, the trait you want to have if you're in the investment business where losses are, are part of the game, similar to President Trump in that way. And so there's a huge denial mechanism. And no, he did not ask for forgiveness. He told me um, that he felt, he felt really bad for his, his, uh, you know, his victims and everything. He knew he'd done wrong. He was devastated by what he did to his sons. He essentially killed both because Andrew died slowly of, of uh, cancer. But I spent a lot of time with victims, and um, it's, it's very, very hard to forgive a guy um, knowing what he, what he, the damage that he caused. Jim, in your communications with uh, Madoff, you know, did you talk to him about the angle? One of the angles that fascinates me was, you know, it seems like he took advantage of uh, his friends um, and maybe preying upon their Jewish religion. Hey, you know, you know, that's where a lot of his relationships came from, whether it's a synagogue or just, you know, uh, circles of friends in Palm Beach or out in the Hamptons. And it seemed to really prey upon, you know, his friends that his Jewish friends. Did that come up at all? Oh, yeah. He's um, in a sense, it was almost a financial holocaust. And in the Jewish community um, to betray financially. Um, you know, fellow brethren is almost beyond conception, which is one of the reasons he was so successful. Here's an example of the two sides of him. Uh, his, his, he had big four investors who he basically took um, his lower net worth investors and passed the money on to them in what I call a reverse Robin Hood. And um, one of the uh, three, uh, one of the four, Norm Levy, he was very close to. And, and, and worked hand-in-hand, hand. and when he died, even sort of took care of him to keep control over him. At the same time, he was the executor of his non-real estate assets. He was a big real estate investor. He stole $250 million to pump into his hedge fund. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, how do you fathom this guy? It, it, it is, it, it's, an, it's an amazing, um, you know, thing that I have been sort of blessed with to try to diagnose this and get under the hood. Did he have any friends at the end, Jim? You, you mentioned that you have uh, that you have a relationship with Ruth, and I know at one point, I think after Mark's suicide, she said she was never going to talk to Bernie again. But surely she must have remained in contact if she hooked you up. Yeah, she. Um, the first thing is that, that she's really was almost cult like, controlled by him, and she had a very hard time decoupling from him. She was thirteen years old when they started dating. She believed his rationalizations and minimizations at first. By the time I met her, she was presenting to me at least that 
um, you know, that he was going to, that she was cutting off relations to the degree she could. He emailed her. He phoned her. They were in communication still. Uh, they were, she was also, uh, obviously through me funneled, uh, uh, stuff to him, but, um, it was very hard for her to, to get through, to be honest. She was also very hurt, as I say in the book, by um, some sexual affairs that he had that actually related more to control of his investors than it did to the pure sex. But that's all in the book. You'll find also in the book, I will just, uh, I'm the first media, media source, I believe, to determine if Ruth, Mark, and Andrew were complicit in uh, any way. The FBI and the specific trustee believe that they had to have known. And I have, uh, I've got a, it's in chapter eight, folks. Right. Well, that's interesting. Real quick, how was his time in prison, the 10 years? How hard was it? Did he have any friends or any supporters, or was he really uh, alone? Uh, my understanding was that actually, you know, he's charismatic, and uh, he, is a, he, he is a non-con con man because he's so low-key. And I think he gained a lot of respect. A lot of the prisoners thought he was kind of cool to have pulled off what he pulled off. <laughs> and he's kind of a survivor that way. Um, he's been sick for a while, though, um, pretty badly and isolated, right. I think, uh, hospital wing. All right, Jim. Hey, Jim, we really appreciate you taking time here on this uh, really important day. Jim Campbell, he's the author of the upcoming book. It's due uh, out in uh, stores and on online uh, on April 27th, entitled Madoff Talks. Uh, so that uh, should be very interesting, given the, the timing that we have here. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here. Coinbase public offering today via direct listing. We're still waiting for that to open, uh, but it is certainly has the attention of a global Wall Street. Meltem Demir's chief strategy officer from CoinShares Group joins us here today. Give us your thoughts of what's the feeling inside uh, CoinShares today? Quick delineation. Coinbase is listing today. CoinShares, which is my firm, listed about a month ago. So look, really great day for the industry. Coinbase is not only going to be a great validation, not just for crypto assets, which are a $2 trillion market now, but for the companies building in the crypto ecosystem. Slated to be a $100 billion IPO, I think we're going to tap $150 billion by the end of the week. Coinbase will be bigger than Goldman Sachs, which is amazing. But really the monumental moment here is we're firmly planting the flag in the ground. Crypto is an asset class. Crypto is an industry, and for investors, this is a place where you can no longer afford to ignore. You have to be allocating to this sector. You can do it via the assets themselves. That's what we do at CoinShares. We have $5 billion in assets under management in our exchange traded products. Or now with Coinbase, you can buy equity in high-growth fintech companies. So we're super excited. So let's talk about, the well, to some extent, the differences, right? Coinbase is an exchange, the largest U.S. cryptocurrency exchange, what you offer with your exchange-traded product is the ability to, and correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, to buy Bitcoin, <laughs> but I don't have to, I can buy Bitcoin with your ETP, but I don't have to figure out how to hold it. Do I put it in, I don't yeah. know what it's called, cold storage or whatever. Um, exactly. You guarantee you my security. You know, exactly. you know, I know what I'm talking about, Meltem. No, but the point is, you um, you basically take the the busy work out of it for an old Gen Z guy like me, and I don't have to worry about someone stealing it. I I still own it, though. Yep, exactly right. So CoinShares, we've been around for the last seven years, and basically, what we do. 
We're an investment firm that does a lot of different things. We're best known for products, which again, you can go onto any old brokerage platform, type in a ticker and hold crypto exposure in your account. Coinbase lets you buy the underlying assets directly, which is different, right? They're, they're more of an exchange and a, a bank effectively. But again, there's tons of innovation in this space. We're seeing a lot of different companies going public over the coming months and years. And we're really excited. You know, I manage our venture portfolio. We're also investing in a lot of these companies with our balance sheet capital. And we're just so excited to see huge validation. I just want to say one more thing on the Coinbase um, listing. What's really cool here is Coinbase didn't do an IPO. They're going to market through a direct listing, which I think is great. Um, but more importantly, this listing is going to be the biggest direct listing and one of the biggest capital markets events we've seen in the venture space in the last 10 years. So I think, again, the fact that this is a crypto native company that's able to achieve this type of outcome just validates why it's so important for investors to allocate to this space. Um, and I think, again, just a huge moment for this industry after seven years of being called crazy and the traditional <laughs> financial world shunning us. We are now being accepted because we speak in the language that investors understand, which is money. Well, you know, my my heartache is um, when I started researching and reporting on Bitcoin in 2012, I bought some, put it in my blockchain wallet and promptly forgot the password. I'm not I'm not feeling the pain as much as some of the bigger whales that did the same. But um, the benefit, I guess, of an ETP, which you offer, is that I would be able to, what, call somebody and say, hey, help me out here? Exactly. And it's also the other element that's really important is you can hold exchange trader products in your retirement account, right? So tax advantage savings, really important. Meltem, are you going through a tunnel? Are you in an elevator right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I'm, I'm right okay. here. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you're breaking up a little, but we got you. Okay. So look, the big opportunity with ETTs is the retirement accounts. Americans hold the majority of their wealth in their homes and in their retirement accounts. So we want to get crypto into every retirement account so that people can grow their, their wealth through this asset class and through these businesses in their tax advantage savings, especially as the U.S. government looks to tax earners and savers alike at a much higher basis in the years going forward, given all of the deficit <laughs> that we're seeing in this country and in the world more broadly. Meltem, you talked about maybe some of the um, uptake of some of uh, these cryptocurrencies out there. Give us a sense for the institutional appetite for all things crypto. There's concerns that maybe uh, we're not seeing the uptake from some of the big institutional investors. What's your experience? Yeah, absolutely. So look, from an asset allocation perspective, we produce a weekly fund flows report that tracks all of the inflows and outflows into crypto products that are publicly traded. Right now, those products have over $60 billion in assets under management between them. The last two quarters have seen record inflows. And I'll just share one more fact. Gold has typically been the preferred portfolio diversifier for institutions. What we are seeing right now is uh, over the last two quarters, gold products and gold ETFs have seen $20 billion in outflows. Mm. Crypto products have seen $7 billion in inflows. And so what we have here is a sector rotation. 
Investors and allocators need diversifiers in the current macro climate. Our research has found a 4% allocation to Bitcoin is the optimal portfolio diversification to balance risk and reward. JP Morgan says 1%, but we think our research is better at 4%. Um, But look, investors are looking to diversify. They're looking for places to generate return with real inflation at 25 to 3% and fixed income at close to zero and real rates at close to zero. We think uh, crypto and Bitcoin will play an increasingly important role in investor portfolios. And allocators are starting to come out of the woodwork. They're starting to allocate in size. And nowhere is that more apparent than the inflows we're seeing into these products. All right, Meltem, great to get some time with you. I hope we can talk to you a little bit more after this. Meltem um, Demirs has been really a huge driving force in this industry. She's on the She founded the World Economic Forum blockchain council and you've probably seen her if you watch c-span testifying in front of congress on uh digital currencies she also teaches at mit as well as oxford and um right now you know we're focused on the coinbase direct listing it's indicated to open at 359.45 and no now indicated to open at 365 dollars in the nasdaq debut but there's so much more to talk about around crypto especially as here in europe they're talking about digital currency and they're focused on privacy i wonder how much of that she believes we'll get her back on again soon this is bloomberg john tucker there talking about some of the big banks that have come out today jp morgan uh, goldman sachs wells fargo we have one of the top bank analysts on Wall Street. Chris Whalen joins us, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. And Chris, let me get your reaction first to JP Morgan. I mean, everyone is saying it was such a great quarter, and yet the shares are down for the third day in a row. Well, it's because we're counting last year's earnings, very simply. If you back out the release of loan loss reserves, which they had put aside when COVID first exploded on the scene, uh, we're now taking them back into income. So if you really look at the numbers, their expenses were up, uh, revenues were flat, and as you mentioned in your intro, loan demand is soft. Um, you know, it's funny, in the classical economics text, when rates rise, you're supposed to see an expansion of margins on lending. We're not seeing that. Uh, net interest margin is being squeezed. So I think, honestly, uh, it may be record gap earnings, because the accountants and the Fed let them take $4.5 billion back into income from loan loss reserves. But if you back that out, the numbers don't look so good. And I think that's what the, the more astute observers on the street are, are, are going to trade based on. How concerned are you about uh, the commentary from J.P. Morgan about the corporate loan growth or the lack thereof in terms of demand? Is that something you view as temporary, that eventually as this uh, economy reopens, we will in fact see – lenders come back into the market or borrowers come back into the market? We've had soft loan demand for a while. And, you know, the street typically hasn't focused on this. They just focus on the press release, uh, maybe the first paragraph of the press release when it comes to earnings. But banks are in a very difficult environment now because the Fed has created scarcity in just about any asset class you look at. And the competition for big commercial loans is intense. So in order for banks to win that business, they have to be willing to drop their rate. And in some cases, the banks just fold their arms and say, no, I'm going to just leave the reserves at the Fed. I don't need to work for nothing. 
which is what quantitative easing really means. It means financial assets have no value. And so I think the Fed needs to rethink what they're doing, because if we leave current policy in place, I think banks are going to be in trouble by the end of the year. Uh, there's a certain level of, of interest earnings that they have to have to survive. And we are going to test those limits because of people like Janet Yellen and Jay Powell. They just don't get it. You know, they're, they're working with a playbook that's 25 years old. Yeah, but Chris, I mean, um, you know, we're coming out of this pandemic. It's all about getting the economy open. And these banks are right. printing record profits. Nobody's going to cry for these guys. Well, they're printing record gap profits. But if you back out, the loan loss reserves, they're not doing that well. Um, look at, again, look at the results if you take that out. Because remember, that's last year's profits we're counting now. That's not this year. But that's how about the capital market money. stuff? I mean, you know, the consolidation in the banking it's, industry has resulted right. in five, six of these players just racking up numbers that, and I used to work on the street, we'd never even think of these levels of profitability. Well, no, and, and thank God, because it is the transactional side of people like Goldman and J.P. Morgan that's going to save them temporarily from quantitative easing. The, the ill effects on net interest margin and on the return on earning assets, which is really all that matters with banks. You know, a bank's a big portfolio. If they're not making money on their assets, you can survive for a while when the Fed pushes the cost of funds down. The cost of funds for the whole industry today is about $11 billion for $20 trillion worth of assets. Think about that. And that's just helping them look okay. So over the next several quarters, the benefit of that cheap funding is going to eventually ebb. And the, the earnings on assets are falling just as fast. So it's kind of a race to the bottom right now on banks. The mid-sized banks, I mean, I'll give you an example of a bank I love, Western Alliance, that just bought a big uh, mortgage company, Amerihome, from Apollo. They're going to do okay because the smaller banks have more pricing power. They're, they're chasing smaller loans. Mm. But the big banks, you know, they, they are in a world of hurt right now because the competition for large assets is global. Every private equity fund, every sovereign fund, they're all chasing the same customers. And is, so JP, thank God they have capital markets. Is any of the big banks positioned well to deal with this situation then, Chris? Or do you look down... Um, the latter to the smaller, uh, mid-size and smaller banks? Look, the best uh, bank in the top five is U.S. Bancorp consistently. Uh, mm -hmm. They have actually been taking more losses than the other banks have, which I see as a sign of strength. They're cleaning house. There's a lot of forbearance on the street. So as an analyst, when my clients ask me about these banks, I tell them often I don't know because the Fed has countenanced uh, forbearance on commercial credits, especially commercial real estate, that I think we're going to regret. Because their hope is that the economy bounces this year. You know, people go back to New York City, we start to see utilization of commercial assets return. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I think right. Dick Ravitch is right. I think New York City's in trouble. And all the lenders who have exposure to commercial real estate in cities yep. like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, I think they've got a long, long road ahead of them. Okay. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your take on some of these big bank earnings uh, that we are uh, dealing with this morning and also more to come uh, later this week. Chris Whalen, he is chairman of Whalen Global Advisors based in New York. We're getting some guidance here. Coinvoice, uh, Coinbase indicated to open at 340. We'll have more coming up. 
Now I want to get over to uh, Bloomberg Businessweek reporter William Turton, who's written a story with Joshua Brustein about a kid, really, a 23-year-old coder who kept QAnon online when no one else would. That's the uh, headline from your Businessweek story, Nick. Um, who is this kid? He's not a. He doesn't appear to be a white supremacist or um, a QAnon follower. Um, where did you find him? Hi, thanks for having me. Nick Lim is the CEO and founder of a company called Von Tech, uh, which is based in his hometown of Vancouver, Washington. And they provide uh, various web services, but most importantly, they, they provide a, a, what's called a CDN service, uh, which prevents websites from being knocked offline by kind of malicious attacks. And so, you know, websites like 8Coon and the Daily Stormer, which is like white nationalist website, have been kind of dropped by mainstream Providers of that service, like Cloudflare, for example. So Lim's company, Vonwitech, kind of steps in to fill that void. And his clients, um, you know, as far as we can tell, is, is a very small amount of people who kind of run some of the most extremist websites on the Internet. All right. So it, it kind of goes to, I think, when a, a lot of folks, when they think about uh, technology and, and, and social media and the spread of extremist views, they think, obviously, of the brand names, the Facebooks of the world. But there's also, Twitter. as you point out in this Business Week story, there's a lot of smaller players involved as well. This is, is more than just Facebook. Right. And, you know, there's this kind of interesting debate going on right, right now about deplatforming and social media censorship, right? But, but what if you take it a little farther and, and think about, you know, does someone have a right to have a website even, you know, even if it has kind of the most abhorrent views? Um, and Lim is, is kind of, you know, in, in what he explains as a maximalist for, for free speech. Um, and, you know, he kind of summed up his, his ideology when it comes to this issue to us, you know, very simply by just saying, I don't care. As long as it's not illegal in the U.S., you know, he's happy to support it. But he believes in free speech, then you're saying? Well, right. That's what that's what he says. That's that's I think how he justifies, you know, kind of exclusively offering his services to, you know, extremely far right uh, uh, websites. He exclusively offers them to them or is he just the only one that will accept them? Or are you saying he actively courts white supremacists? That's true. Yes, he does. You know, we found an instance where. He, you know, actively courted Andrew England, who runs the white supremacist website Daily Stormer, and offered him uh, free services. Um, but, you know, he claims that, uh, you know, he offers his services to everyone, but the only ones that we could find really were, were sites like Acoon and the Daily Stormer. Who else does this? Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that this 23-year-old with this small company is the only one providing, I guess, technical support for some of these extremist groups. Is, is, is this a collection, a lot of small players out there, William? Well, you know, as we know in the story, Cloudflare still offers services to sites that kind of have these extremist views, right? They, they've only really dropped support of, of certain sites, um, um, you know, under a lot of kind of public scrutiny and pressure, right? And this is an extremely nuanced and complicated issue, which Cloudflare has itself talked about. Um, but, you know, there's, as far as I know, there's, there's no one really like Nick, um, you know, considering most people don't actually have problems using, using mainstream providers unless there's kind of a massive backlash that comes from it. It's funny. I would have thought you'd see in, in um, maybe Eastern Europe or Asia, 
the hosts of these QAnon um, supportive websites. Now, I say that, um, William, without thinking about Facebook and Twitter, which Paul mentioned at the top. I don't obviously um, surf the web and go to these little niche places, but I do see these kind of weird uh, views. I guess if I can, I don't want to make a value judgment on it, but I do see these kind of QAnon views spreading across everyday Facebook pages. Right. I mean, you know, the, the Facebook's difficulty in moderating content has been well documented, of course. I mean, I think it's just sort of interesting, um, you know, how even if you try to deplatform someone, right, like if, if Cloudflare stops offering its services to Acun, there's someone like Nick who can kind of fill the gap. So it's really just a question of how hard these sites want to try to keep themselves online and then, you know, you're you're at the point where you're kind of playing this cat and mouse game, right? And so what effectively, what are you doing, right? You're kind of chasing different sites to different service providers, but maybe you're not actually kind of confronting the real question of the content and, and how, to, how to address it, you know, societally. So, William, has there been any pushback on Nick Lim and, and his company, Vanwall Tech? Has there been any regulatory pushback, legal pushback? Um... Anything that might people try to stifle his operation? Yeah, you know, we feature a researcher in the story who kind of had made it a personal mission of his to to disrupt uh, Lim's operations. And so he, you know, found one of the providers that helped provide Lim his services and, and wrote them and, and they, they took him offline. But, you know, as I was just saying, Nick quickly found someone else to, to keep his services going. So, um uh, you know, <laughs> there's always, I think, going to yep. be someone that, that will be able to offer this kind of thing. I guess, I guess the question is, is he um, is he helping to keep any illegal content out there? Right. I mean, you mentioned, right. for example, not just white supremacist websites, but there are also, you know, these kind of 4chan, 8chan, I guess it's morphed into 8coon now. I can't even keep up. Um, they also... That's intentional. <laughs> they they, they also branch... They also branch into really uh, illegal things like child pornography, right? Well, Akun, you know, bans child pornography, or, or at least it says it does. And and Lim is very clear that you know if if you know something was illegal, he wouldn't support it. Right now, in practice, what does that actually look like? It, it's hard to tell. Um, but you know, I I think these people aren't actually really that interested in, in having much legal liability. They're, they're more interested in seeing how far they can push the first amendment. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as far as kind of any regulatory or legal pushback, I mean, not much has been written about Lim or his company. Um, and he actually avoided a lot of scrutiny during the kind of peak of QAnon, but, you know, I am curious to see what, what happens next. I, I don't anticipate any legal or re regulatory pushback because Lim, you know, as far as I can tell, isn't doing anything illegal. Interesting. William, thanks so much for bringing us this story. William Turton, cybersecurity reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, his story on uh, uh, a small part of the internet, is, uh, but certainly a big part for some of these uh, extremist websites. Uh, you can find his story uh, in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.